Good morning, everyone. It is good to be back. The last four Sundays, or three Sundays, four of us pastors have been on the road speaking in each other's churches. This is a picture of the four of us together when we planned this series all the way back in April. And uh, we did this, the four of us churches did this because we wanted each of our churches to just get a sense and see the larger team of churches that we partner with, uh, not only here in Southern California, but, but a little larger than that. And these three men that spoke these past three Sundays were more than just uh, guest speakers. These are men that uh, are close friends of mine. They have shaped my life in many ways. I've worked closely with them over a large number of years. I've walked with them, uh, them uh, with them and they with me through some hard times. And so every Sunday, as Rebecca and I would head off to uh, one of their churches, I was always torn. On the one hand, I was really excited to get to go and see um, and meet the people that uh, they lead and pastor. But on the other hand, I really wanted to be here, not because I wanted to speak, but because I, I would love just to have been in the background and kind of see you get to, to meet these guys that, that mean a great deal to me. And my prayer has been in this series that um, you would uh, get an understanding or a sense of the larger vision of what we're trying to accomplish um, beyond just what our church is doing. And so I hope, hope that's uh, been true for you. You know, as fun as it was uh, to visit the other churches, it's, it's great to be back. I mean, I, I know why sports teams love it when a road trip comes to an end, so I'm, I'm ready to, to be back home. So in this series, we have been talking about the ways that God has called us to team together to accomplish what He wants done. Now, the idea of teaming makes sense to us in a lot of areas of life. Uh, when it comes to sports, obviously, we need to team together. Even individual sports, there requires a team to kind of be behind the, the athlete. Uh, in business, we have to team together if we're going to make uh, any money. Uh, when it comes to parenting, we realize that it really just takes more than one person. Even a single parent really needs to gather kind of a team around to help raise the child. Uh, neighborhoods, my neighborhood right now, we're putting together a neighborhood watch because we're, we're needing to team together to kind of be aware of what's happening in our neighborhood and, and address you know, the potential of some crime. Uh, when it comes to educating our kids, we, we, again, we, we understand we have to team together to do that. We can't just do that by ourselves. But when it comes to spiritual matters, for some reason, this picture is kind of how we, we tend to think of a relationship with God and growing. It's just kind of us and God. And, you know, moments like this where we're, we're alone and we sense God's presence, maybe out of nature, maybe up on a mountaintop like this guy is doing, you know, those are meaningful and, and they're, they're important. But when you read the Bible, you discover that when it comes to making progress as a follower of Christ— it looks very different than this. It looks like this second picture that I'm going to show you. You as an individual pick one of God's teams. You join a church and you start pulling together, not just kind of flopping around, but really digging in and trying to work together as a team to accomplish the things that God wants done. That's the image that you find more in the Bible than kind of our common image of just us and God alone. And then as, as we work together, something very surprising happens, something unexpected. We as individuals end up growing in the process. And growing is part of what it means to be a Christian. Deciding to become a Christian isn't just a, a point in time. It's, it's really a, a beginning of a whole different direction in life. That's why we're called Christ followers or disciples of Christ. And Jesus describes what our mission is and what this is to look like uh, to the disciples just before he left and to all of us as a result. And this is kind of the, the marching orders or the mission statement of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus said. Then Jesus came to them and said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the part that I want to really focus on this morning is that teaching to obey everything I've commanded you. If that's the growth target, if that's the the mark, the obeying everything that Jesus taught, what that means is that every one of us has room to grow. I have yet to meet an individual who said, you know, I think it was just last Thursday or Friday, I I did the last thing that Jesus said, and so now I've I've pretty much nailed it all. (laughs) I've done everything. None of us could honestly say that. Every one of us is somewhere from doing nothing that Jesus said to doing everything that Jesus said. We're somewhere in the middle. And it really doesn't matter exactly where you're at. What matters is that you're moving the needle towards the everything side. That's called growth. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we get traction? How do we get movement in that direction? Well, it says we we need to be taught, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And when we hear the word teaching or taught, we tend to think of this picture. We, we, We think of a a classroom. That's the kind of teaching we're most familiar with. There's a teacher up front, students sitting in a row at desks with books open or notes open or computers open, you know, listening to the teacher as the teacher teaches on a particular topic. But Jesus called the one being taught a disciple, not a student. And a disciple carries a very different image than a classroom image. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. Here's a picture of of individuals who are learning how to be electricians. You can see the electrical boxes there in front of them, and they're, they're learning how to wire those boxes. The, the, we don't use the word disciple much in our culture, so the equivalent, the modern equivalent for the word disciple is apprentice. The idea is that learning takes place in reality, not, not just in theory in a classroom. We're not just learning words and ideas to pass tests. We're learning how to really do something. And for most of human history, this is how learning occurred. We were apprenticed. You'd learn from what we now call a a journeyman, which simply means someone who's further ahead on the journey than you are. They they know how to wire the electrical box. And so they can help you with hands-on experience to to learn how to do it yourself. But with the start of the Industrial Revolution, as, as our economy really began to shift, the learning also shifted from an apprentice-based model to an academic model. Now, we still have apprenticeships, primarily in the trades, and particularly in uh, medicine, we have both an academic and apprentice model. That's because before we want someone or let someone operate on us, we want to know that they not just got an A on the test, we want to know they can actually do surgery. And so we have the residencies, which is more of an apprenticeship model. But most people now, an increasing number of people now, don't really experience apprenticeship they experience academia. And so most people grow up as students under teachers, not so much apprentices under journeymen. We learn and we grow and we pass tests and then we graduate. And this shift in approach to our learning has really affected the church and the way we view growth or progress in the church now. The church has moved from a discipleship model to more of an academic model, kind of reflects our modern culture. And so we tend to now have an academic view of what it means to grow as a Christian. The thinking is that knowledge of the Bible will produce growth. It'll produce Christian character. 
So then the focus is on telling people what to do more than it is on showing them how to do it. So for us who lead churches as pastors now, the the primary uh, focus or request for us is to be good at this, what I'm doing right now, teaching, standing in front of people and presenting a good message. That's more of a concern than actually leading the church so that more and more people over time are learning how to do these things and able to help other people learn how to do these things. And we often hear things stated by people who want to grow, like, you know, I want a more in-depth Bible study or I I want a more in-depth message. And if you ask them what they mean by depth, they, they don't mean how to apply the really hard stuff Jesus said, like love your neighbor or love your enemy particularly. That's That's deep. That's graduate-level Christianity. But that's not what they mean. What they mean is, I would like to wade into the kind of the intellectually deep end of the Bible. Now, most of the Bible is very easy to understand. You you can read it and figure out what it's saying. But there are some significant chunks of the Bible that you really have to think and get some help to try to figure out, what is this saying, and why is this here, and what does it mean? And And it's important over time to learn those things, but when people say depth, what they usually mean is, I I need to know more. I need more facts. I need more Bible knowledge. And I understand why people think this, because, well, that's the way the academic world is. You know, you don't start out with calculus. You start out with addition and subtraction and multiplication, division, then you move on to, you know, geometry and calculus. You you don't begin with differential equations. You know, that's that's graduate-level stuff, maybe. And so we kind of think that's the same way it is with the Christian life. We, we start with the basic stuff, and then we need, it needs to get intellectually harder and harder and harder. But you see, as a Christian, we advance in obedience, not in knowledge. Now, you do need to know in order to obey, but traction and progress occurs not once you learn something new, but once you actually do what the Bible says, what Jesus says. That's how we grow. And this is why we're called, we are called disciples of Christ by Jesus, not students of Christ. And the reason this is important to understand is because the tests occur in real life, not on paper. You know, if you're married, you don't get to take a, you know, an online test or a paper test at the end of every year to certify your marriage. You're good to go for the next year because you answered these questions correctly. Now, that's not how marriage works. You have to figure out how to work together as a team and how to solve problems and how to communicate in the middle of conflict. And that's a skill. That's not just a knowledge. And parenting, even more so. You can't just pass a parenting test each year and come up with kids that are, you know, the way you'd want them to be. You've got to figure out, well, how do we address this problem? And they're doing this now, and how do we respond to that? And what, what's going on here? It, it's an on-the-job kind of learning skill that needs to occur in life. And that kind of growth takes a team. You can study, you can learn all alone, but you cannot be apprenticed, you cannot be discipled alone. And that requires really an entire church in order for this to happen. And Jesus gets very specific on why this is true in Matthew chapter 18. In this passage we're going to look at this morning, Jesus mentions the word church for the second and final time. Two chapters earlier, He had talked about the church and that he was going to establish the church and it was going to be the the centerpiece of how his kingdom would advance in this world. And now for the only the second and final time, he talks about what the church is going to do. And he addresses two very powerful growth elements that occur when we team together 
in the church. We're going to look at both of these today. The first one is this. When we team together, life gets more real. And that's essential for growth. Life gets more real. I'm going to read Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Just a little warning before I read this. This is going to sound a little um, shocking. So don't react to it immediately. Give me time to explain what Jesus is saying here. But let me read this as we begin. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This is the second time Jesus uses the word church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow, I told you it'd be shocking. That sounds pretty heavy-handed, doesn't it? But this is not talking about showing up at some big church meeting like this to be confronted about the sin in your life. I mean, this, this only can occur in a much smaller level. I mean, who would ever have the right, really, to do something like this? Who would you even ever listen to at this level? It would be someone who is really close to you. They are like a brother or sister to you, as Jesus says. They're close enough for two things to occur, for them to be personally impacted by your sin, and secondly, for them to really care about you. That's the context in which this occurs, brother and sister level friendships and relationships. You see, the problem is you and I have patterns of sin that need to change. We all have patterns of sin that need to change. The question is, how are we going to get moving in these areas that change needs to occur? Well, to get the ball moving, two things need to occur. More needs to happen to keep it rolling, but just to begin to move in the area of change, two things need to occur. First of all, you have to be aware of what needs to change. And secondly, you have to want to change. If you only have one of those, change isn't going to occur. You know, if, if you're aware that you need to change, but you don't want to change, you're not going to change. If you're not aware that you need to change, you're not going to change. And on our own, these two almost never happen. We continue to remain largely unaware of the patterns of sin in our life, and we remain pretty unmotivated, therefore, to do anything about them. You know, when I was single, I, I thought I was a pretty decent guy. I mean, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, are you sinful? I knew the answer on that test. I would say, well, yes, we all are. So I knew the right answer. But, you know, I looked around, and I thought, you know, all things considered, I'm C plus, B minus, B maybe. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. And then I got married. And I discovered that I wasn't quite as amazing as I thought I was. <laughs> and then I had kids, and, well, then the, the gig was up. I, I, I was not near as amazing as I thought I was. And the pressure of those close relationships squeezed some, well, some ugliness out of me that I hadn't fully been aware was really there. I hadn't seen it. Now, my wife and my two kids were not the cause. They were not the problem. They were just the context that kind of squeezed and revealed the stuff that was already there. What occurred when I got married and then when I had kids is my life suddenly had a drop cloth. You know, we've all painted with a, a drop cloth. You know, it's a confined space where it's safe to paint. Because if you drip paint, it goes on the drop cloth, and it's not going to damage the furniture or the floor or whatever it is that you've got the drop cloth over. And that's what happens in close relationships. You, you kind of have a, a confined area, the relationship, where 
I mean, you're not, you don't plan on dumping the whole bucket over, but as you paint, as you do life, and your sin kind of drips out, well, it's, it's in the context of these relationships where it's confined and it's safe. I mean, most relational you know, uh, contexts are not that safe. You know, you drip sin out, and it's kind of like, it could be a big problem. That's why we are, are at our very worst when we're at home, because it's safe there. You know, when we go to work, we, we got to keep it together. You know, when we're in public, we, we've really got to keep it together. But we get home, and we're angry, and we're selfish, and bleh, we just drip sin right all over the place, because it we know that they, they love us, and they're kind of stuck with us. I mean, they're committed to us, and so it's, it's kind of this drop cloth thing. You know, before I was married, and particularly before I had kids, I, I, again, I knew in theory that I was a sinner, but it wasn't until those close relationships that I really got to see the impact because my sin was dripping out on people that I loved. It was affecting my wife. It was affecting my kids. And therefore... My need to change, well, it became more real. It moved from, yeah, that'd be a good thing for me to do sometime, to, I got to figure this out. I got I to gotta get some traction in this. So on our own, we tend to remain pretty much unaware of what needs to change. I mean, everyone around us is going, ooh, they need to change. But we're like, ah, bebopping along. And we also stay pretty unmotivated. Now, we may be fine with wallowing in our own patterns, but those who are really close to us, close enough to really care about us and to be hurt by us, they're not okay with us staying the same. Now, the church is designed to be a drop cloth for our sin, a safe place where problems can, can come out. They can be seen by us and a few others that really care about us, and help can be offered. But that can't occur in a setting like this. You know, sitting here, nobody's sin is oozing out. I mean, you're all behaving very well. We're in public. You know, you've pulled it together. Maybe you argued all the way here. But once you got out of the car, it's like, all right, let's put the game face on. Let's keep it together. And you're, you're doing great. So you're not irritating me. I'm, hopefully, I'm not irritating you. So what that means is everything that I say on Sunday or whoever speaks here on Sunday is, is really theory talk. I mean, it's true, but it's true in theory, not in reality. For example, I could talk this morning about how destructive gossip is. And all you have to do sitting there is go, yeah, that really is destructive. Or maybe you could go, nah, I don't, I don't think it's that bad. You just agree whether it's true or not true. But you're not really involving yourself with gossip at that point. But if you and I are close... If we have, you know, a friendship and you gossip about me, well, now we got a problem. See, now I'm upset with you. Or the reverse would be true. If I gossip about you, now you're upset with me. Now the topic is no longer a matter of theory. Now it's real. And it's in the context of close relationships that things get real. And change can occur. Without that... You can listen to a message about gossip, and you can say, you know what, this is a pattern for me, and I've got to stop it. And you can sit there, and you can pray to God, and you can determine to yourself, I'm, I'm just going to stop gossiping, and then you can go to lunch and just start gossiping. It's just really hard to change these patterns. 
So how does this work then in reality, in the context of a church? Jesus gets very specific on this. For the most part, the power to grow occurs as we pick a church and form brother and sister level relationships with a few in that church. Now, that takes time, especially in the way our our culture and our economy has worked together. We don't really need to be in relationships for many things to happen anymore. And so it takes a concerted effort and a decision for us to carve out the time to work with people on teams, to get together with them in groups, to have them over to our house, to go over to their house, to, to build these kinds of relationships. But the investment is well worth it because when our sin drips out and causes problems, we now have someone who cares about us to talk with us about this. It's safe. As Jesus said, it's just between the two of you. That's as safe as it can get. You and the person your sin has just dripped on, trying to clean it up and trying to figure out how to change. Just between the two of you. You see the statement before this, go and point out your fault, that part happens all the time. You know what it's called? Conflict. Whenever someone gets mad at you, not always, but in most cases, it's because you've dripped out some sin on them and they're saying, hey, knock it off. But most relational conflicts are far from safe. They come out just as anger. They come out as frustration. What tends to happen is they're not face-to-face. They're processed behind your back. When people are upset with you, they'll either get mad at you and there'll be kind of an outburst, or they'll just start talking about you behind your back, not face-to-face. And behind your back, the story of what you did can be edited in any way the teller wants to tell it. In other words, they can leave out all the wrong that they maybe did to kind of incite you or be a part of this. They can feature only the wrong you did. They can jump to the wrong conclusions about you. But when it's just the two of you, you, someone you've dripped sin on who really cares about you, well then, you have to consider what they're saying and they have to consider what you're saying. You can't get away with just, well, then you didn't, without them saying, no, don't you remember, but you first said this. Oh, right, I did say that. Reality is kept in place. Face-to-face keeps it real. It's the best chance that we ever have for getting at the truth, what's really going on here, this just between the two of you, face-to-face thing. But what if the two of you can't make progress? What if you can't agree on what happened, whether it really was wrong or not? Well, for most, that's where things get stuck. This is why marriages can be very helpful, but this is where marriages get stuck. You say to your spouse, hey, hey, you did me wrong, and they say, no, I didn't, and you say, yes, you did, and they say, uh-uh, and you say, uh-huh, and they say, uh-uh. Now, I know it's, there's more words that are used, but that's the basis of every marriage argument, uh-uh, uh-huh, uh-uh, uh-huh. So you go around that tree, the same tree, again and again and again, and you're just stuck. You're, you're not making any progress. But in the church... You're in a larger context than just the two of you. It starts with just the two of you, but it occurs in a larger drop cloth than just your own relational drop cloth. So Jesus says, if they will not listen, well, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why take two others along? When we hear that, we think, well, that's piling on. Is that why? Okay, you won't listen to me. I'm going to get two more people who agree with me, and we're going to hammer you. No, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Well, what's the purpose behind getting two other people, one or two other people involved? 
so that two or three people can weigh in on this? Well, the purpose, as Jesus said, is to establish the matter. The matter is, what's gone on here? What happened? The word established means to make firm. The idea is we're trying to figure out, we're trying to nail down what's really going on here. Not what you feel, not what I feel, but in reality, what's happening? What have I done wrong or, or what have you done wrong? And if the two of you can't figure that out, well, you need some help from some other people. You're not just people to join your cause of, you know, confronting the other person, but to, to, to ask them, hey, this is what we're trying to figure out. Could you guys listen to this and, and, and help us figure out what do you think is happening here? We, we want to establish what's really going on here. I mean, maybe the one who brought up the problem is completely off base. Or maybe the person that caused the problem needs to hear it from more than just one person. But let's say even that doesn't work. What if the matter is confirmed by two or three, and the person still refuses to listen and take it seriously? They're willing to look at three intelligent people who are honestly looking at the matter and saying, yeah, we think this is really happening, and they're still saying, uh-uh. Well, what do you do then? Well, then, Jesus says, you tell it to the church. Now, he's not saying you stand up in public and you shame the person. What he's saying is you go up line to the church leadership, and you ask for their help. I mean, maybe the two or three of you are all off base. But if church leadership is helpful and, and gets involved and, and it, it, it further establishes, yeah, this really is what's happening here. This is, this is the matter. What if the person is, is willing to, to say to you, uh-uh, and to say to two, three other good-hearted people, uh-uh, and say to the whole church, no way? Well, what do you do then? Well, Jesus says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Whoa. Really? I mean, the first question is, how do you treat tax collectors? I mean, we don't we'll do that online mostly now. In Jesus' day, tax collectors had used the Roman authority to enrich themselves, and so they were, you know, very troublesome in that culture. Uh, the word pagan, we don't use that word much. Cause we, we think the word pagan means like the two or three really bad people in our neighborhood. But the word pagan simply means without God. So what it means is, as this person makes their decision, God's just not a factor. You know, as they, let's just say this last week, they went through all of the Black Friday, you've got to buy this pressure. And they just bought whatever, and they never once thought, how does God want me to handle my money? It just wasn't even a consideration. It's just them and their desires, and if they have money, I'm just going to do it. Well, that's an example of a pagan decision. I'm not saying you're a pagan, but that was a pagan decision. Or you, you make a marriage decision. You never check with God. Or you make a business decision. You don't, you're not concerned at all with it. You basically build a life where God's just not a factor. That's what it means to be a pagan. Well, how do you treat a pagan and how do you treat a tax collector? Well, the question is, how did Jesus treat them? He loved them. In fact, if you read through the story of Jesus in the New Testament, one of the things that was most irritating to the religious leaders of the day is Jesus would fill his social calendar with pagans and tax collectors. These are the people he hung out with. These are the people he pursued. These are the people he loved. And their thought was, how could you, I thought you were from God. Why are you spending with time with so many people who aren't, they don't factor God into their life decisions? He said, well, it's because I want them to do that. 
I love them. I, I want them to change. So if someone's a pagan, that just means God's not a factor. So I treat my neighbors as pagans. I don't call them pagans, but I treat them as pagans. I don't expect them to take what Jesus said seriously. Of course, they're, they're, not, gonna, they're not serious about Christian growth. They, they haven't made that decision. So if someone goes through this process and they, they're willing to, to look at church leadership and say, not going to do it. I don't care. Well, you don't know everything about the person, but at least as it relates to this decision right here, they're not serious about growth. They don't really want to grow. And so you don't treat them horribly. Then you're just like, oh, okay, now I understand where you are. I'll love you as someone who, for whom God's not really that important. But now I know. I'm not going to keep treating you like you're really serious about this. You're really serious about growth because, well, you're not. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to put you down. I'm, I'm going to love you. But now I understand where you're at. It's, it's clear. Now, if you're getting nervous about this, you have no reason to be nervous, okay? None of this can happen unless people take the time to really know each other well enough and really love each other. So this is a choice that everybody has to make. It's your choice. It's your choice to step beyond Sunday. I mean, if, if you just visit on Sunday morning, you're more than welcome here. You're more than well and willing to learn here. That's your choice. But if you really want to grow, if you really want to get traction and make progress in this learning to obey everything direction, well, then you need this kind of help. I need this kind of help. We need to be a part of a church that we trust enough to listen to and in close enough relationships for this kind of thing to actually happen. You see, just attending church on a Sunday is kind of like visiting Italy. You know, you, you encounter a different culture. You know, culture is made up of a, a different perspective on life and a different set of values. But visiting Italy or visiting a church on Sunday isn't going to change your perspective. It's not going to change your values. And my wife and I got a chance to spend three weeks in Italy back in 95. And um, we love the Italian culture, but it's different. You know, we all have a list of what's important in our hearts, our, our value list. And for the Italians, as best I can understand, food is like almost at the top, if not the top. They are serious about their food. I mean, it's, it, they take hours gathering the food and going to the market and picking out the freshest ingredients and bringing them back and cooking them and then eating. I mean, I'm, I've eaten for 30 minutes, and I'm like, I'm done. And, and we are just partway at the beginning of this seven-course meal. And they are serious about food. So much so that I thought, when do they get anything done? How do they work? And I realized, not much. They mostly eat. <laughs> and their economy you know, reflects that, their value system. But I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying you encounter a new culture and you say, huh, that's different than it is in America. You know, we grab food on our way to something else. Every once in a while, Thanksgiving, we make a big deal of a meal. But even then, we're ready to get onto the football. We're done. So it's, it's a different value, a different perspective. And so the same thing occurs when you visit a church. You will encounter some ideas that are from God that it's a very different perspective on life. It's not the way we think in our culture. And God says, you know, this is important, and then this, and, the, and then this, and then this. And our culture says, uh-uh, this is important more than that. And, and you'll encounter all of that. That's different. That's, you know, you, you grew up in this culture. You probably have the values of this culture like we all tend and so you encounter something different, and it's like, well, that's, that's different. But 
It's not going to change you. For that to occur, you have to move into someone's house in Italy and live there for a while if you want to become Italian. You'd have to do that. You know, my wife and I visited for three weeks, and we ate a lot of Italian for about two or three months. And then after that, we were back to just good old American stuff. You know, the, the Italy is a fond memory, but its culture has had no impact on us. Same thing is true if you, if you decide to become a Christian and you just visit on Sunday morning, you will spend, you know, an hour or so each week going, huh, well, that's different. I think I'd like to be like that. And then you go off and you get involved in your week and nothing happens. It's as you move beyond this larger gathering to the smaller teams that God's ways become more real and, and you can get some traction and begin to make progress in these areas. So when we team together, life gets more real. Second thing Jesus said is when we team together, God gets more involved. God's always involved, but you will see him do some things that are pretty unusual when you team together. Here's what he says. Jesus says in the next set of verses in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you in my Father's name. For where two or three come together, there's that two or three thing again. In my name, there am I with them. Now we read that and we think, really? Can that be true? Have we just discovered the blank check of heaven? I mean, we just get one or two other people to agree with us on whatever we want, and we pray about it together, and then God's going to make it happen? Well, let's just think about it logically. What if two people are praying for the exact opposite outcome that you're praying for? Will their agreement before God cancel out your agreement before God? I mean, I was in Texas a few weeks ago during the World Series, and a lot of people there are praying for Houston to win. A lot of people here praying for the Dodgers to win. Houston won. Why? More people praying in Texas than in California? Yeah, for sure, right? Probably. (laughs) That's a fair assumption. But is that why Houston won? Because, you know, is that the way it works? I just got to pile up more people to kind of crank heaven to get in the direction of what I want. Is that what Jesus is saying here? No. This is not talking about how to win the lottery or to get what you want in life. This is talking about how people change. This is a continuation of the same theme. You see, the teaming of two or more together to pray is a continuation of the teaming of two or more together to address growth, to address sin. And the point is this. You can get two or three people who love you, who care about you, who are helping you grow, and you're still going to need more help. You need God's help on this. It's not enough to see it. It's not enough to be motivated. God's going to have to get involved for you and I to really make progress. Because growing and and changing is kind of like tying a knot. That's this binding and loosening together image that Jesus is talking about. You know, we've all had the experience of tying our shoelaces. And then we walk and, I thought I sensed that down. And it comes loose. We've had that exact same experience when we try to change. We make a decision to change, and we lock it down. We, we think we've bound a change into our heart, and then we move a day down. It's like, I'm doing it again. It came loose. I thought I made a decision. Why can't I bind this thing in place? 
Well, the reason is because that's not the first knot you've tied. That's not the first pattern you've tried. You've got a history of knots. And some of the knots that you and I have in our life, they're not just a single knot. They're, they're like big balls of gnarled up yarn that are years and years of pattern that have been cinched down. And I mean, you've, you've, have you ever tried to undo those knots that have been in place like for years? And those things don't loosen very easily. What this is saying is, if you're trying to bind some new things in your life, you're trying to loosen some old patterns, you need heaven's help. Because if something is bound in heaven, it doesn't come unraveled on earth. If heaven loosens something, then on earth, it comes loose. So the question is, how do we get heaven's help? Well, two to three. We gather together, we team together in prayer. Because God says, when you guys get together to pray about these things, there I am. I'm with them. Well, I thought God was everywhere. He is. But we don't always see the evidence of his presence. What this is talking about is you're going to see me show up in some ways that are pretty unusual when you do this. You're going to see some change that just doesn't normally happen. You're going to see people with decades-old pattern suddenly begin to loosen some of those patterns and begin to bind some new ones in place. Well, why does it take two or more for that to happen? Why can't an individual just say, God, help, and that to be enough? Well, that's a good thing. I mean, go ahead, cry out, God, help. But, but if you really want power from heaven, in the context of these relationships where people are really praying for each other, that's where you're going to see it happen. And the reason is because two not only means that life becomes more real, two or three together, But two or three together also means that God becomes more real to us. Now, he's real, but our perception of that, that comes and goes. And we use multiple witnesses to confirm the reality of what we see. Just recently, I was at the ocean, and I saw a pot of dolphins swimming by. And because my eyes aren't what they used to be, and because I've been tricked before, I've mistaken floating kelp for dolphins several times, so I turned to the person next to me and said, are those dolphins out there? And they looked for a while, and they turned to me and said, yeah, they are. I'm like, okay, I'm seeing reality. If they turned to me and said, no, nah, no, it's like, okay, well, I'm hallucinating again. I'm, I'm misperceiving reality again. And that's, that, that's what we use witnesses for. Are you seeing this too? Oh, okay, good. Then it's really there. And when we gather together around the things of God, you know what we're really doing? God's real, right? Do you, do you see this? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Me too. We're declaring that the invisible God is real. So when we gather to pray or we gather, even you know, in this context, to sing or like this, to hear God's Word, the reason we gather is because at some level we either have a suspicion or we become convinced that this God stuff is real. I mean, why else would you be here? There's a lot of other things you could do with your time. I'm not saying you should, but there's a lot of other things you can do with your time. Why did you get out of bed, carve some precious time out of your week to come here? The only reason is because you think this is real. Now, you may be suspecting it. You may be, you know, investigating it, not yet convinced, but you're at least wondering if this is real. That's why we gather 
together. But you see, we move then into our weeks, and by the end of a normal week, we are, at some level, we're wondering how real this really is. Because let me ask you, what seems more real? Your job, the economy, your bank account, all the marketing that's been inundating us relentlessly for the last several weeks? That, that stuff seems more real. We, 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 you know, we just begin to wonder. Most people we've encountered this past week, they don't think God's real. Now, they're not necessarily against God, but they're making decisions that makes it clear, like, yeah, God's not a factor. And much of what we've prayed for individually didn't just suddenly happen. So by the time we get to the end of a week, really at the end of just a few days, we're starting to, now we wouldn't say this to anybody, but we're starting to kind of be weighed down. We just, we wonder. I mean, this world and this culture is so intimidating. It basically yells at us all week long, hey, God's not real, this is. So we, we wonder, we just have some doubts. And then we step in a room like this, and we start singing. And as we look around, and we see other people sing to the God that we cannot see, we're reminded, okay, good, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one that thinks this is real. Now, mass hallucinations are possible, but, you know, just, if you don't know, just talk to some people around. This is a fairly intelligent group. These are people, many of them, that are being paid good money to do intelligent things. These are not the kind of people that just grab onto crazy stuff. You are surrounded by very intelligent people, capable people, who, like you, have become convinced that God and His Word are real bedrock, foundation of the universe, real. And that helps you. You see, if we're not teaming with God's people, then it, at some level, this just isn't that real to us. It's theory. We, we might agree with it. We might answer the test right, but it's not, doesn't have the teeth of reality. And if it's not real to us, if it's not that real to us, God will treat our prayers in the same spirit in which they're offered. Not that real. So if you really want God to, to grow you and you really want God to show up in amazing ways over time, then teaming together in the church is what you're looking for. Not just the big meetings. starts there. But particularly the small gatherings. It's in the small gatherings where we, we work together on teams to accomplish something that God wants done or, or we serve together or we care for each other together, or we gather around God's Word in our growth groups to, to talk about what this means in our life, and we pray together. It's in that context that we get to see God grow us. Because as we team together, life just gets more real. We get that drop cloth, and God shows up in pretty amazing ways. Let's pray together. Father, we... Um, well, you know how much we need to grow. We prefer to um, sometimes just remain intense, intentionally dense on how much we need to grow, but you know the truth. And the people close to us, they, they, they see it. But it's, it's scary for us to admit, and it's hard for us to change. We've got long-standing knots, some of them that we cinched down in anger or pain or in rebellion decades ago, and, 
it, they just they just won't come loose with our effort. I pray that you would help us take the next step to team and that as we work together and as we pray together that you would show us the next strand to begin to pull on to begin to unravel those deep deep patterns that need to change some of them our parents put into us that are the hardest of all to unravel and to loosen God we we need change we need help and I pray that you would build in this church the teams where growth can really occur over time you would help individuals here take the opportunities that are presented to them and to carve out from their very busy schedules the things that really matter to you. We thank you for the churches that we partner with together and the, the training and the opportunities. And I just pray that, that hundreds in the coming years would, would really take advantage of these opportunities. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.